So this week, um, we've been adjusting to having three children, which is just a nightmare. It is, it is chaos at all times. And so uh, one of the things that I've been trying to help out with is picking up Sienna from school um, so that my wife doesn't have to load up all the kids, get them out, get them out, all that kind of stuff. So I'll try to go along with her, pick up Sienna. Um, and uh, this week I picked up Sienna <clears throat> and the, the teacher opens up the door and she spots me and she says, I need to talk to you about what your daughter said today in class. I thought, oh great, she's cussing again. And, uh, <laughs> and so I go over to her and I'm like, oh, you know, what happened? What's the deal? I'm sure she picked it up at school. She wouldn't hear it at home from us. And uh, and she says, no, no, it's hilarious. She said the funniest thing today. She had me cracking up. Because at Veterans Day, this was just this last week, it was Friday and it was, um, Veterans Day was coming up. So they were talking about the armed forces and they were talking about people who um, work on the water. And they're going through, okay, well, you know, the Navy, they work on the water and things like that. And so they get finished with the exercise. And they say, can you think of anyone else who works on the water? And her hand just shoots up and she says, yes, Deanna. And she goes, Jesus works on the water because he walks on the water. <laughs> And she was like, hey, I was like, yeah, pastor's kid, that's what's up. And, uh, and I, I was super excited. And what's funny is her teacher is a Christian. And so she was really, she told me she was really excited because she doesn't get to talk about Jesus in class because of the public school. But if kids bring it up, hey, that's, you know, that's up to them. And so she was really excited that they got to talk about Jesus for a moment and things like that. But here's what I was thinking about that story is my daughter's favorite story is how Jesus walks on water. And she could tell you, she's been telling that story since she was like two years old. She knows the story. She loves the story. It's her favorite story. But the problem with that story, at least for, I think, most people in the modern world or in modern West, post-enlightenment, us, is when we hear that story, we go, okay, I'm sure there's some deep principles there and there's some great things for us to understand. But the thing that we can't quite get over, unless you were raised in church or you're a Christian, or the, the thing that we can't quite get over is no one can walk on water. That's just ridiculous. Maybe it's an analogy for something. Maybe we're supposed to learn something about it. But the fact of, actually, of it actually happening, it being historically true, just sounds ridiculous. Jesus walking on water. And this is not just true of that story. It's true of all Jesus' stories. As he seems like an incredible guy, he has some great teachings. But the whole walking on water thing, the whole water into wine thing, two different times, by the way, that would have been a lot of wine, uh, the whole healing people, all that just seems too far-fetched. It's just too hard for us to believe. And so a lot of us will get rid of Jesus because we just don't think that the miracle part seems realistic. Now, Jesus is actually going to address this very thing. He's going to say, the reason why you don't believe in me or you struggle uh, submitting your life to me is not because you can't believe in miracles or it's not because you haven't seen a miracle. Because I hear people say this all the time. They say, you know, I would believe in Jesus and I would follow him if he were to do a miracle in my life. If I had some real tangible evidence where I could say, yep, I know Jesus is real because something supernatural happened when I talked to him or when I prayed. And so that confirmed Jesus is real. But Jesus is actually going to say that is not true. The real issue is deeper than just some kind of supernatural, miraculous event happening in your life. The reason why you may not follow Jesus, or at least you, you struggle following Jesus, is going to be deeper than that. So we're going to jump back into Matthew 12. And um, if you've been around here for a while, you know that we've been in Matthew forever. 
So to give you a little bit of background information, up until this point in the chapter, Jesus has been performing miracles in front of these guys called the Pharisees. Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. They're Jewish, and um, they keep kind of all the Jewish laws, and they teach everybody what they are. Super, super moral, super religious people. And so as Jesus is doing these miracles, like healing a demon-possessed man who is blind and mute, um, they witness this, and their explanation of why Jesus is able to perform this miracle is because he is empowered by Satan to be able to do it. And so no one's denying that Jesus is doing supernatural things. They're just saying, you know, the reason why you could do it is because you work on behalf of Satan himself. And then this is going to be the follow-up to, what is, to, to kind of what has happened um, um, in this event. Okay, here's what he says in Matthew 12, verse 38. It says, Then some of you Pharisees and teachers of the law, or some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So they're trying to really get away from admitting who Jesus is. And so they go up to him and they probably thought about this, maybe a group of them, they conspire against Jesus and they go, okay, we're going to go up to him and we're going to challenge him to do something miraculous on the spot. And at first, this doesn't seem like an unreasonable request. In fact, we see this throughout the Bible is when God works through people like prophets to deliver a message, it's almost always accompanied by some kind of miraculous sign. You know, how do we know that you're not just making this up? How do we know that we can trust what you're saying right now? Well, I wouldn't be able to do this. Boom. You know, the stick turns into a snake. Okay. So the, the reason why they wanted a sign was to confirm that the message he was saying was true or the claims that he was making were true, that he is the Messiah. But here's the problem is, uh, oh, by the way, I, I still see this today. I'm super into, and you know this, um, apologetics, which is not apologizing for things. It's defense of the Christian faith, and we talk about all these evidences and things like that. And so I love watching debates between Christians and atheists. And um, these atheists, they will say, usually when they're challenged, and someone challenges them like, hey, what would it take for you to believe in God today? What would have to happen? And there's a couple popular answers. I've heard one atheist, he says, you know, if tonight um, I looked in my bank account and there was $50 million deposited and it said, I am real, love you, Jesus, then I would believe that Jesus is real. Or he says, I, maybe not 50 million, how about this? If we walk outside and it says, Jesus is the Messiah in the stars, clearly, then I will believe it's real. Now here's the problem, if you push them hard enough, you would say, well, let's assume that you walk outside and you do have this miraculous experience. What would your first thought be? And they always say that I'm having a psychological breakdown. See, okay, well, there you go then. Even if a miracle did happen, you still wouldn't believe because you would find an alternate explanation as to why this is occurring. I must be having some kind of hallucination right now. It can't be that God is actually real. It can't be that Jesus is actually showing himself. It is that I am having a breakdown right now. And that's what Jesus is going to point out in a moment here. He's going to say that, you know, the real reason why you're asking for a sign is not for confirmation. It's so that you can find a way out of this deal. It's so that you can embarrass me and then you, can, uh, and then you don't have to submit and follow me as Savior. You don't, you don't want to really want to find out who I am. You don't want to know the truth. What you want to do is you want to put up a smoke screen and try to find your way out of this deal. 
And so for us, um, I think about our excuses when it comes to Jesus, and we all have them. Some of us, we're new to faith, or we're not even sure what we believe, and, and if you're being honest with yourself, and I love uh, that one of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, he says, you know, if you're thinking about following Jesus, but there seems to be something inside of you that has some kind of resistance to him, you have to answer the question, what will it cost me to follow Jesus? Because it is going to cost you something, and you know that. Intuitively, you know it's going to cost you something. So you just have to be aware that you have some apprehension following Jesus. And all of us do. Whether we say that we follow Jesus or, or not, we probably have a list of excuses as to either why we're not following him at all or why we're sort of only halfway doing this Christianity thing. I meet with young adults all the time, and then, you know, depending on the stage of life that they're in, they go, well, you know, um, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, yeah, I'm totally down for all that kind of stuff, but I'm not really too serious about it yet because I'm super busy with school, and I really want to finish that up, and then I'll probably get more serious, I'll get plugged into the church, or, you know, I'm trying to land my job, I'm trying to figure out my career, I'm trying to do that, and so, you know, once I get that all settled, then I'm going to focus in on, on God and my faith and getting plugged into a community, and we all, have a, we all have excuses, and the excuses um, are, are either, you know, our schedules or either intellectual, you know, uh, hurdles that we have to overcome or whatever, but here's Jesus' answer to our excuses. Here's what he says, and by the way, um, whenever people read the Bible for the first time, and this is even true of me as I'm going through the Bible, I'm always shocked of how rude Jesus is to people sometimes. Like, he can be so nice and caring, these the outcasts, the people who no one would touch. He goes and he hugs them and he loves on them and he shows them incredible grace. And then the people who think that they're, you know, righteous and that they've got it all figured together, he is just so rude to them. So here's what he says. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. See, that's rude, right? Like, that's rude. You probably wouldn't say it in the grocery store because it wouldn't make any sense, but that's rude. Here's what he's saying is the Pharisees, they claimed to be the religious leaders, that they were very moral, that they were very spiritual, that they had a great relationship with God. And in fact, they spoke on God's behalf because they knew what the scripture said and they taught it to the people. And Jesus is now confronting them. He's challenging them and he's saying, okay, you say that you are dedicated to God, that you worship and that you serve him. But if that were true, if you really did know God, then you would understand who I am. You wouldn't need a sign. Because if you had a relationship with God and you loved him and you knew him, when he showed it up in the flesh, you would love him here as well. That's how I know that you don't know God. Because when God shows up in front of your face, you not only reject him, you ultimately end up killing him. And see, this is a really challenging text because what Jesus is saying is um, no matter what kind of lip service we give to God, that, oh yeah, we love God and, you know, and, and we want to follow God, if we don't accept Jesus, that means that we actually hate God because Jesus is God incarnate. And if we don't love Jesus, it means we don't love God. And if we reject Jesus, it means we reject God. Now, I was listening to a pastor about this and um, he's an old guy and he's kind of grumpy and, you know, it's kind of painful to listen to him, but he had this very interesting insight in here. And it was so politically incorrect that I had to share it with you. Here's what he said. He, he said, you know, all the religions in the world who claim to love God, he says, Islam, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, all these religions, do you know that those people actually hate God? At first I was taken back. I'm like, whoa, whoa, that sounds harsh. You know, like, let's tame it down a little bit, but here's his explanation, is if they have rejected Jesus 
and Jesus is God incarnate, then they have rejected God. If they don't love Jesus, they don't love God. And I went, okay, the, the reasoning is sound. I get that. that, that makes sense. And so Jesus is really the, and this is what the Bible says, he's the cornerstone. He's the one that ultimately decides your relationship with God is, do you love him? Do you hate him? Well, right now he's pointing out to the Pharisee and he's going, you know, uh, I see that you not only do not accept me, but you reject me. And so another miracle is not what's going to convince you. Because you've seen them all. Do you remember the demon-possessed person who was mute and he was blind and I healed him? And do you remember all the other miraculous things I was doing? I was, I was saving people from their sins. And I would, Do you remember all the things that I just did? So you want me to do some more tricks for you so that you can continue to make more excuses? He says, no, it's not, that's not the problem. What the real problem is, is not that you lack the evidence to follow Jesus. It's that you lack um, an open heart to accept him. He says, your hearts have been hardened. There's no, there is no amount of evidence in the world that will convince you to follow Jesus because you will always have another excuse. You always have another explanation. You'll always have a way out. It is, at the end of the day, a heart issue. Then he continues on, he says this, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So he says, I'm not doing any more miracles for you. I'm not gonna do this. In fact, there's only one miracle that is maybe going to save you. That if you witness this, maybe you'll finally come to faith in me, because clearly all the other ones wasn't doing it. And then he says, it's the sign of the prophet of Jonah. Now, that's kind of strange, because we, um, we're probably familiar with, whether we grew up in church or not, the story of Jonah. And if you're not, let me give you a really, really, really quick recap of it. Um, you remember Jonah and the whale. It's not actually a whale, but that's what we had in our coloring books. And so you had Jonah and the whale, and God tells Jonah, and this is back in the Old Testament, this is way before Jesus, um, God tells Jonah to go to this city called Nineveh. Nineveh is a pagan city. They do crazy things. They're super immoral. They worship these crazy gods. And, uh, and he says, I want you to go to that, that city. I want you to tell them that they are screwing up royally, that they need to repent, meaning they need to turn away from their sins. They need to come back and worship me, the true God. Oh, and by the way, um, I know that like they're your enemy, and you, you, the two nations, Israel and Nineveh, you guys hate each other. And Nineveh actually has this really cool talent. They're able to skin people and keep them alive at the same time. So yeah, that's where I need you to go. And I need you to tell them that they're screwing up, okay? Go. And Jonah says, not interested. I'm out of here. I, first of all, I don't like them, okay? And second, I like my skin just where it is. And so I'm going in the opposite direction. So instead of going to Nineveh, he heads in the other direction. He jumps on a boat. And while he's on the boat, God goes, hey, you can't run away from me. He ends up getting thrown overboard and a big fish comes and swallows him up. And he is sitting in there in timeout for three days. So as he's sitting in timeout, thinking about what he's done, eventually this fish spits him out and he goes, I better listen this time. He goes to Nineveh, tells him, you guys are screwing up. The true God is our God. You need to repent and change your ways. And they do it. Now, um, if you're not a church person, this kind of sounds outrageous. And you're like, oh my gosh, you guys believe in that? <laughs> it's crazy, you know, like in a fish for three days. Um, one, we, you know, if there's a God, then that's pretty basic stuff. But here's the other thing that I just learned is I did not understand this. But this, this is so, there's so many cool nuances in the Bible, is the city of Nineveh, uh, like I mentioned, they were a, a pagan city in which they worshiped all these, these various gods. 
And their two gods that they had were both fish gods, one of which was a, a god that was all human except the fish, except with a fish head, which is crazy. And so they worshiped this, these, these, uh, these gods. And all of a sudden, this dude gets spit out of a fish onto their shores and going, that's not the real God. You're kind of going to pay attention. You're going to go, wow, okay, like, that's crazy. You know, like, we like fish, and you just lived in a fish, and so we're listening to what you have to say. It's crazy to me. All right, forget you guys. I thought that was cool. All right, here we go. Verse 40, for uh, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus is making a prediction here. He says, you know, um, Jonah lived in that whale, or that whale, that fish, see, coloring books, that fish for three days, and I'm going to do something that's analogous to that. I'm going to live in the ground. Now, but of course we know he's referring to being um, killed and put in a tomb and then resurrecting, but they're kind of listening to this going, I think I know what you're, I don't really know what you're talking, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not really sure. So he makes this prediction. He says, that's going to be the ultimate sign of who I am. And if you're a Bible student, you may have heard this thing. There's this thing called typology and it's types of Christ in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is written before Jesus and there's all these foreshadowing imageries of Jesus that's gonna come that don't make sense until Jesus arrives and you look back at it and you go, whoa, that's crazy. That happened hundreds of years ago before Jesus and then that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And so this is one of those things is Jesus dies, goes in the ground and resurrects. Jonah swallowed, he you know, is like in the belly of the, the beast and then he is, is purged out. Whoa, those are kind of cool analogies, metaphors. That's, that's, all right, that's cool. I like the Bible, you guys don't. So anyway, just kidding, you love it. All right, 41, he says this. Uh, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. So he's drawing this contrast between um, Jonah and his proclamation of repentance to Nineveh and what they're hearing, the repentance and the, the calling to come to Christ, and how the response is so different between the two. So if you take Jonah and Nineveh, the, the, the Ninevites, they had a messenger, Jonah, who hated them. I <laughs> like just couldn't stand them. Literally was risking his life so that he would not have to be with them. And when he came to them, he didn't come with this uh, wonderful message of Jesus loves you. He came with um, the true God is pissed and he is going to condemn and judge your nation unless you turn around. And I hate you, by the way, right? This is the message that they get. And they hear this message and they decide to take it seriously. And they go, we need, to, we need to repent. We need to turn to this true God. You compare that to what happens with Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus comes along with this message of grace and love. And he says, listen, I love you. I care for you. I want to have a relationship with you. And they are, are, are not, not, not foreigners. These are people who have been anticipating this Messiah. And yet when they hear this message, they don't embrace it like the Ninevites. They reject him. In fact, they end up murdering this Jesus. And so Jesus here is talking about um, the evidence that they had and the response to it. He continues on. He gives another example. He says, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. So he gives another example that's kind of uh, making the same point, is there was this queen of the south, and if you know the story in the Old Testament, it's a queen named Sheba. Sheba is incredibly wealthy. They say that she's beautiful, and she lives on the, you know, the, the opposite ends of the earth to Solomon, who is the king, wisest man ever to live. And he, she hears about this Solomon, and she hears about his, his wisdom and his riches and his God. And so she travels across the entire world, or their known world at the time, to meet this Solomon and hear about this God. And as Solomon begins to explain who this God is, she's intrigued, she is fascinated. In fact, she's shocked. She's so excited that they end up trading incredible wealth with one another. And then she goes back home, and we don't know what she does with that, but all we know is that she um, came, she asked tough questions, and she was very impressed with this God of Israel. Now, it's another example of someone who is a pagan, who is far away from God, who geographically is far away from God, and yet was seeking after the true God of Israel. And yet here are the Pharisees. Jesus is standing in front of them in the flesh, and yet they still won't accept him. And so what he's getting at here, something that he's actually talked about in other uh, passages, is this idea of spiritual culpability. Now, culpability in legal terms, it's um, the degree one is at fault for something wrong that they've done. So it's like kind of the more that we know or we do um, when we commit a crime on purpose, the more culpable we are for it. So an example would be this, is it's the difference between manslaughter and murder, Manslaughter and murder. I was driving home last night from um, service. We had a meeting afterward. And the craziest thing happened is as I was driving down the street, uh, I passed this little white car that had been, it looked like it had been T-boned or something like that. And there's a bunch of people standing around it. And I'm oh, that's horrible. That, that, that's a bummer. And so I, I keep driving down the road. And the next block over, I see a pickup truck. It's upside down in the middle of the intersection. And then there's like a bunch of damaged cars around this thing. And it been a ton of people have been acting on it. So I pull over and I start going to, and the ambulances hadn't been there yet or anything like that. So it like just had happened. It was crazy. I got out of the car and somebody goes, Cody. And, and it was someone from Seacoast. They said, we need to go pray for these people, you know? And, and so I'm like, okay, yeah, let's go. And so there's a young lady and, and she, her car is totaled and, and she's kind of frozen in the, the front seat. And then the driver of the pickup is upside down on the roof of his car, and then there's another car that has pulled over to the side, and so it was just a mess. It was an absolute disaster. Now, luckily, from what I understand, everybody ended up being okay. Everybody was conscious, everybody was talking. It, it seemed like everyone was gonna be all right. Of course, they all got um, taken away in an ambulance, but it seemed like everybody was going to be okay. Now, to, I found out as I was talking to people there that the driver of the pickup truck was driving recklessly down the road that he was the reason why all these cars, one a block away had been hit and all these other cars had been hit is because he may have been drunk, I don't know, but he definitely was driving recklessly. Now, if, if one of those people had been killed, he would be convicted of manslaughter, right? Now, he wouldn't be convicted of first degree murder, but he would be convicted of manslaughter. Why? Because of his culpability, his intention, this purpose behind it. It's, at the end of the day, someone is still dead, but... What was his purpose? What was his intention? How much did he know? How much did he think about it? He had a level of culpability. This is also true with kids and, and, and adults. 
is adults are more culpable than children when they do something wrong because they know that they should be better than that. They know what is right and wrong. They have a higher level of intellect, and so they should know better. So what Jesus is pointing out here is he's saying, you know, um, people are spiritually culpable as well. This doesn't just apply to legal terms when we do something wrong. This applies spiritually. Is the more that you know about me and yet you still reject me, the more culpable you are. So the Pharisees who are standing in front of him, who see God in the flesh and reject him are more culpable than the people who have never heard of Jesus or have heard of Jesus, but it's just some crazy myth or, what, or whatever it may be. That those people are more culpable. Now here's what this means for you and I, is the more that we know about Jesus and yet we don't respond to it, the more judgment we're putting upon ourselves is by being in this room right now, in which you may not want to show up next week, is by being in this room right now, and you hear the message, and you reject the message, or at least, or you know the message true, and you don't actually apply it to your life, you do something about it, Jesus says you are, you are uh, putting judgment, and you are putting more culpability upon yourself than if you had never heard the message to begin with. So if you come and listen and you don't do anything about it, it is worse than if you had never heard it to begin with. Not really a a raving endorsement as a a pastor for why you should come, but here's the flip side of it. Is he also says, the more that we know and we accept and we implement into our lives, the more peace and hope and gratitude and healing that we will also have in our lives. Because if the if the the culpability of the rejection is true, then the acceptance is true as well. The more that we know, the better our lives will become, the closer that we're gonna be able to get to God. So uh, what's happening here, and I I was trying to think before of how to contextualize this for us, is the Pharisees are being told in this moment that the Ninevites, who they hated, who were immoral, who were horrible people, are ultimately going to judge them at the end of time. Now, I don't know exactly what this means and how this judgment works, but what he's saying is they're going to be forgiven and you're going to be condemned. Now, this is radical for them. This is outrageous. This is one of the reasons why Jesus ends up getting killed is because he says stuff like this. He says, you know, you religious leaders, you people who claim to know God and you follow him and you do all the rules and you're super moral and righteous. You know what? The pagans who are super moral, who have actually repented, are going to be judging you at the end of time. Now, here's how I can contextualize this, at least the best of my ability. I was thinking about this is, um, let's imagine that your next door neighbor is a great family, all American, just every, everyone wants to be them. They have a great job, they're super friendly, they've got great kids, they do everything they can to raise kids who, who are well-mannered and who, who are well-adjusted and who are succeeding. And so everything that you can think of that the American dream would be, they are it. They're respected in the community, they give back all the time, they are just what you would consider, just salt, they're great people. Except there's one problem. Every time you talk about Jesus, they go, you know, that's, that's great, and that's interesting, and I, that's so great that you believe in him, but for me, that's not really for me. I'm not into that, but I love that you have found something that gives you purpose. Now, on that same street, let's imagine that there is a crack house. It's a very odd neighborhood. There's a crack house down the road. It's, a very, it's very strange. So there's a crack house down the road, and in that crack house is a drug dealer. 
And all the horrible things that happen within a crack house happen there. There are prostitutes there. The police are constantly surveying the place. Um, people are ODing in there. This guy is, is, is selling drugs out the back door. I mean, it's a me- absolute mess. And this guy lives there his entire life, just destroying people's lives, including his own, and destroying the neighborhood. And then as these two uh, different households, as they live in this neighborhood and they get older, they come to their end of the li- end of their life, and the next door neighbor, the all-American family, they've, they've had a great life, and they've raised great kids, and it's been super successful, and everybody loves them. And the guy down the street that everybody hates, and he's ruined so many lives, goes, you know, I've screwed up pretty bad in my life. I need to do something about this. And so he begins a journey, and he finds Jesus. And he says, you know, Jesus, I, I messed up. I need your forgiveness. And he, he comes to Christ, and he gives over his life to Jesus. Now, Here's what the story would look like if it were in our context. It would Jesus be saying to the next door neighbor, the all-American awesome family, you're gonna die. And when you die and you are judged, that guy is the one that's gonna judge you. And he's gonna condemn you. I would be insulted a little bit. I would be put off a little bit. You're telling me that I've lived this great life. I've raised great kids. I've had a great family. That guy has destroyed people's lives. And because he says he's sorry and he gives his life to you, he gets to go to heaven and you're condemning me to hell? How does that work? That's exactly what's happening here. You religious people who follow all the rules, who have got it all together, you know that the, 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 the pagans are gonna judge you because they repented and you didn't. So here's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, you know, Sometimes the people who have the hardest time coming to Jesus are the people who believe that they have it all together. It's the people who don't understand that they are sick and that they need healing, that they're broken and they need somebody to put them back together because everybody in this world is messed up. Just some people are more aware of it than other people. Everybody is broken. Everybody needs Jesus. And yet there are some people who think that they can do it themselves. And there's other people who just know they can't figure it out on their own. And so Nineveh in this story is this messed up nation, these just immoral, jacked up people, and they realize it because when they hear the call that there is this perfect God who wants a relationship with them, they go, yeah, we knew we were messed up. We've been messing up this whole time. And yet when the Pharisees are told you're messed up too, they go, no, I'm not that messed up. I'm all right. I'm pretty good. I follow the rules. See, at the, at the core of what's happening here is that... Um, there are, there, there are people, everyone in the world wants to take control of their life. Everybody wants control of their life. That is what keeps us from uh, coming to God, is this idea that we want to be auton- autonomous, we want to be in charge, we want to make the rules, we don't want to be told what to do. And so some of us choose to be really good people, moral people, because that's how we want to live our life. We think that that's actually how, um, how we can live the happiest life, is by being the all-American family. You're not doing it because you think that... Um, you're doing it for your own reasons, not for God. And oh yeah, I'm gonna impress God along the way. Okay, fine, you've chosen to do that, but you're still in control of your life. You could choose to go and, 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 and live a crazy life chasing power and pleasure. At the end of the day, the result is still the same, that you still wanna be in control of your life and you were white knuckling it and you won't give it up. And so whether you choose to be a person who serves the poor every single day or a person who goes out and pursues um, pleasure, At the end of the day, if you are still in control of your life, you have still said no to God, that I do not need you, that I have got this on my own, that I have this figured out, that I am in control of my destiny. 
That eternity is based on what I say. I'm in charge of my life. Whether you, you act one way or another way is indifferent because ultimately you're not giving up control. See, the people who have the hardest time giving up control of their lives, I think, are the people who believe that they have it together, are the people who live this life that everybody sees as a moral life. And that's probably most of us in this room, right? Most of us in this room probably see ourselves as pretty good people. Yeah, we, we, you know, we do some things that we probably shouldn't once in a while, but for the most part, we're good people. And there's these moments in which something in us rises up and it's this little bit of just evil, just a little wickedness. We just go, oh, oh, where'd that go? Oh, oh, better get that back down there, right? We're driving, somebody cuts us off and we're ready to just blow if I had a gun. Oh my gosh, I'm following you home right now. And they go, oh, evil. Okay, no, no, no. Uh, classical music, let's go. You know, just like, you just have these moments or you get in an argument with someone and you are just ready to just punch him in the throat in those moments right now, just to prove a point, you know, just to prove a point. Like, dude, chocolate chip is better than oatmeal raisin. You know, like, no, it is, ah, you know, just, whoa, 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 where'd that come from, you know? And we're pretty good at suppressing it. We're pretty good at covering up. And so we think, you know what, we've got it pretty, we've got it all put together. And I've noticed that the people who either find themselves in prison or rehab or somewhere at the bottom of the barrel and they've hit rock bottom, they go, you know, I don't have it figured out. I, I don't. It is clear to me and to everyone else that I do not have it. And those are the people that are most open to the gospel. Because they stop trying to say, I've got it figured out. I think I can make this life happen. I think that I can still be in control. They go, I can't be in control. I can't do this anymore. And that's who Jesus speaks to. So eventually we have to come to the conclusion, okay, am I a person who believes that I can save myself or do I need somebody to save me? Am I the person who says that I can be in control of my life and I'm autonomous and I get to do what I want? Or is there somebody who has a better plan for my life? See, all of us have to come to that conclusion. And the conclusion that I've come to is something, um, something strange happens when you submit your life to Christ. Because all of us are searching for this freedom in which we can do what we want. We, we can go where we want. That's, I think that's why young people like to travel and the world is an awesome place, and I love going to see, but we're like, we're free, you know? Like, Instagram this, put a quote on the bottom, look how free I am, you know? It's just like, we, we think that there, there's some freedom out there that we're gonna have. And the irony of the whole thing is the freedom that all of us are seeking is only found in submission. Freedom through submission. That's what Jesus is asking of us. Freedom through submission. I try to tell my kids this all the time, is look, I know that you think you're so smart. In fact, my, my daughter got so mad at me this week. She was crying. She ran in. She told on me. Um, she told mom that I was so mean to her. As, as she has in her mind, um, here's what it looks like to be free. Here's what I could do. And so you know what I'll do to teach my kids all the time? This is probably bad parenting, but meh, I don't care. Is, um, my grandma came over, and my kids, I've told them 1,000 times not to jump off their bunk beds. They still do it. And my grandma was just like, whoa, you can't do, they're going to hurt themselves. I go, yeah, that's the plan. Because then they'll start listening, right? Like, maybe that, I'm like, I don't want them to get that hurt, like, you know, but like, a couple stitches is fine. Like, that'll wake them up. And here's why. Here's why. If you have a pet, you get this too. Pets are the same as kids. Um, ah, just kidding is if they would just simply submit to me and to Amy, they would experience so much more freedom. 
They would be open to so many more possibilities, so much more fun, safety, excitement. They, their life would change if they would simply submit to the people who have a different purview, a different, a different perspective than they do, a bigger perspective. They understand more about the world. They understand more about them. And if they would simply submit, they would find the freedom that they're looking for. And that's what God calls us to do is he says, you know, you're looking for something that I can provide. But the only way that you're going to be able to get it is if you simply submit, then you'll find that freedom. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we are told every single day that we are to be ourselves, that we are to go out and explore, that we are to go and, and be free. And the great irony is that what we are told freedom looks like ends in slavery. It ends in us being addicted. It ends in us being um, broken. It ends in relationships being torn apart. The freedom that we seek after ends up enslaving us. And yet the submission that you ask from us to follow you, to give our lives to results in the freedom that we are looking for. And so, Lord God, there are so many of us in this room, myself included, who maybe our, our whole lives we've been trying to do ourselves and we need to just come and say, I submit and I give my life to you. Or maybe there's an area of our life in which we say, you know what, all of this is yours, but I'm gonna keep this one little part. And we wonder why we continue to feel like we're enslaved, like we can't overcome that addiction, like we can't overcome that depression. And it's because we simply haven't given you everything. And so, Lord God, some of us need to do that here tonight. Lord, we love you. We love that we get to come, we get to worship, we get to learn, we get to laugh together, we get to um, build relationships, and we get to eat cookie dough. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Amen.